doesn't fall apart. All right, let me just see. The thing keeps falling apart on us too. Don't give up. That's okay. <laughs> I'm gonna get a piece of cake. You can carry on. Okay. I'll be there. So, um, Joy not being well, I'm just filling in with something that I think some of you are already perhaps way too familiar with, but uh, that will be to talk a little bit about the significance implication of the Good Shepherd painting that we have on the wall behind us here. And so I'd like to talk about it, talk about some of its sources, and to try to just amplify a little bit of what, it, what's, what it's all about. Yellow's a good color. All right. Audio was not my, my part of the process when I used to be around these. You have to be careful what you say now. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's first just all turn, get yourself situated so you can look in that direction if you wouldn't mind. Um, when you do look at this, painting and attempt to actually just spend a little time with it, the, probably the last thing that you think of is that it's a landscape. And yet that is the first thing that it is. It's a big landscape. And when we recognize that it is a landscape and we start thinking then about landscape, we can start thinking about where we ourselves are right now. So we're going to talk about all those elements. You can keep watching, okay? But um, consider that we are in a landscape as we look at this landscape. We're, if you have come from Gary Avenue or from County Farm Road on Jewel to get here, you might have noticed that to the south, all of the land slopes down away from you, just about all along the jewel, if you look to the south, you'll see that the land is sloping down. And it's sloping down because it's sloping into something we call Lincoln Marsh. Lincoln Marsh is a natural area. It's a sanctuary of sorts. And so we have this sanctuary sitting here on this ridge, just like my, just like my flower, my, my bouquets. <laughs> <laughs> There, there we are. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So, so we have uh, our sanctuary sitting on this kind of gentle ridge that flows down into the marsh, which is a sanctuary itself. And on the other side of the sanctuary of the marsh, there is another sanctuary, the Church of the Resurrection. So 
when you are here, you're in a landscape. And when you leave here, you confront this landscape. A landscape is all about taking us out into the world, taking us out into what's, what's there. And, you know, the uh, kind of more contemporary, you might say, interpretation that I've been seeing these days about the creation story is that it is a story about that is in Genesis, the creation of the world, which is a kind of a landscape description, is that it's a, a story about a sanctuary, that the whole uh, layout of the Genesis story of creation is um, an effort to explain the development of God's temple. So the sanctuary we are in through landscape and joins the sanctuary that's around us, which in this case happens to be a real sanctuary, Lincoln Marsh, and we know that there are other sanctuaries around it. This painting then is like that. It wants to invite us to carry the mission of our church outward and to see ourselves as outward-oriented um, folks rather than a protective sort of insulating um, location um, we consider landscape because we're interested in, in getting outside. So I think with those kinds of, of with that sort of beginning of what's going on um, in the painting, you know, maybe we, if we turn and start to think about some of its components and where they come from, uh, we'll have a, a, a way of being a little more practically, making the painting a little more practically useful. I guess that would be you know, what would be the, the sort of uh, motive of this little talk would be finding ways to make this painting more useful in our lives. Um, and there are probably many ways that um, we can begin to do that. So uh, the Good Shepherd wall painting, that's, that's kind of what I'm calling it. So what are some of the, 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 what is the subject matter that we've just been observing up there? Well, I think the the first thing that most of us observe is the Good Shepherd, and we think of that probably before we even think of the landscape itself, but the Good Shepherd. Then what I'm calling a world landscape is another feature of it. And the Tree of Life, of course the cross with its limbs outstretched there becomes a, a Tree of Life, and it's full of animals that are birds and various animals flying around. And then there's water, um, the waters that are flowing down and um, as you see there, you'll, we'll kind of connect those to these four rivers in um, paradise, uh, Pishan, Gihan, I don't know if those are the correct pronunciations, Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The Tigris and Euphrates we all know about. These other two rivers that we're told were in Eden um, are you know, subject to uh, interpretation. And then the concept of the holy mountain. So. Those are the components that we have. Where do these things come from? At least where do they come from in terms of my um, ability to, to think them through? And I must confess, you have to realize when I'm talking about these works, I'm not an art historian. Art historians are wonderful people. They've actually taken the time to understand history <laughs> and understand the place of things in history. I'm an artist. I don't understand that. <laughs> uh, I try to to catch hold of it and uh, you know Dr. Milliner will you know maybe be here to support us if we need his help but 
one of the earliest um, images of Jesus as the good shepherd comes from the third century in Rome in this catacomb depiction that probably some of you have seen in which um, Jesus is holding the lamb on his shoulders and is um, portraying the role of the, of the shepherd that we've come to think of him as. But that shepherd, of course, has um, its, um, is predated by other images of the shepherd, like this um, 560 BC image of, called the calf bearer, uh, which you see on the left. And I'm not sure, again, I'm not an art historian, but it may be that that calf is being taken to sacrifice. I'm not sure what, what all the implications of it is. But that calf bearer was a figure that became a model for the image that you see on the right in the third century um, of the Good Shepherd. So you see a kind of similarity. It's just a theme um, that is carried uh, forward in art history. And of course, you know, the great thing is, remember, we're talking about people who made these things, you know, before they had electric lights, before they had all of the things that we have that make our lives so comfortable today. But they're wonderful uh, images that the Christian church adopted and began to um, work with. So those are some of the sources for the Good Shepherd concept. The landscape uh, idea for me was generated uh, when I visited this church, San Opalinarian Classe in Italy. It's a very early building, sixth century, and it has this apse at the end that we're looking down at there. And when you um, stand close to the apse, this is pretty much the way it, it's seen, except it's much more brilliant than this because it's a mosaic that's just luminous and glows. And I was fortunate the t time I was in this church, I got there very early in the morning, nobody else was around and I had the place almost to myself and I walked in there and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm looking at a landscape. Just, I wasn't ready for that. And that landscape in this case is the landscape of the transfiguration. So what we have here is Apollinaris, the um, sort of shepherd of this local church um, who is in the very center at the bottom and on his right and left are 12 sheep that stand for the disciples. But then we see three sheep in the hill there, one on the left and two on the right, James, Peter, and John, and Elijah and Moses um, in the sky, which is golden, and in that cross in the very center is Jesus. But again, what's so impressive about it is it's a landscape which is what I call a world landscape or a total landscape in that it is both uh, natural and divine. It's a world that is completely unified. There's no uh, distinction. The whole idea is that the world is a spiritual place, but it's not a spiritual place by being absent of its nature. In fact, it's full of natural elements. This slide maybe gives you a little bit, it's a little bit garish as a slide, but it gives you a little better feeling of the kind of color that you might experience there. And in this little detail of um, Apollonaris, you can see how the mosaic maker has 
created individual types of flowers and plants and there are different animals and we could see birds if this was a little more expansive. Um, but all of these natural elements are combined in a world that is infused with the spirit. And that notion uh, I think is just entirely important for us uh, because it shows us the world that we want to carry forth as we, as we in a sense, leave this sanctuary. The tree of life, which is the central motif in the um, mural, um, has its antecedents too in ancient art. This is a fourth century uh, coffin or sarcophagus on the left and you see um, this tree with um, these figures who appears to me are covering themselves with fig leaves, which suggests to me maybe they refer to Eden, I'm not sure, but there's this, on, in this coffin, which is a symbol of death, where we have this image of life. So the tree of life um, becomes uh, an important theme. The Christian church picks up on the tree of life in many, many different paintings and uh, different ways. There are mnemonic devices in which all of the text that surrounds what you see on the right, um, uh, the tree becomes a way for us to memorize all these different aspects about the quality of uh, Jesus' life and um, uh, the Spirit of God in the world. But this painting on the, on the right is just another example of the cross becoming a kind of flowering tree that produces all of these fruits which are what all of those texts that you see go out to and some of those circular paintings in them um, refer to as well. I think I have a slide of, here's what that um, Tree of Life uh, by Taddeo Gaddi looks like in uh, Santa Croce in Florence. And since this is Francis, we're celebrating Francis today, in the upper left, you can't make this out, I'm sure, on the, in the left corner over there you see um, Francis receiving the stigmata. So there are four pictures around the tree of life that depict aspects of um, Christian saints in the world. Below is the uh, Last Supper. But this idea of a tree of life isn't something we just cooked up out of nowhere. It's been around for a long time and that's part of where this comes from. <clears throat> Probably the most influential for me of the uh, images and antecedents for our own painting came from the church called San Clemente in Rome where we have this apse mosaic. This is a very ancient church, much older than the apse itself, which dates from the 13th century. In different parts of the church, you go there, you learn amazing things about uh, the building of the church on this site. But my focus was on the uh, apse at the end, and here's a closer view of it in this um, mosaic, which is also gold and glitters and just a gorgeous thing uh, to, to see. We see some of the same elements that we saw in San Apollinari Nuovo, which are the uh, sheep at the bottom representing um, the uh, disciples of Jesus, Jesus himself as a lamb in the very center down there. Um, but of course we have Jesus on the cross with a group of doves above and to his sides and below him, which again represent the disciples. 
You have the hand of God. If you look up just above um, the cross, you can kind of see it um, extending down. And uh, most impressive, though, is the way the cross sprouts this vine at its base, which spreads out. And when you first look at it, your, your first temptation is to think, well, oh, this is an interesting design. Um, and you can think of it as just an abstraction. But it really isn't. It's a plant. It's, a, it's a, a plant that curls outward, that is full of energy, like uh, coiled springs uh, might be. And it's springing out from the base of the cross. And that is, of course, reaching out into the world and bringing life to the world. So we have, again, this concept of landscape, this going out into the world. Thank you. <laughs> OK. I think I'm going to stand in front of somebody at all points, so I can't quite move behind the screen, but <laughs> yes. Well, remember, I mean, I think everything you've said is true, but we also have to remember that this is made by the most educated people of the day. So it's not as though it's a kind of, well, let's offer this for the poor, uneducated person who can't understand. It's also made by the most educated and erudite people uh, of the time. So everyone is involved in this. It was a blessing to the most, uh, you know, the, the best uh, reader, <laughs> uh, as it was to the person who couldn't read. Um, and how it would be interpreted would be by constant encounter and constant experience from childhood through old age and through discussion and conversation uh, that would just be natural, uh, or we hope would be natural anyway, um, to develop. Here's a comment about that from um, Pope Benedict, um, which I think is worth looking at. Um, I was kind of impressed by it. In this lower section, we'll, I'll just read that because it kind of helps us to get into, and he does a really wonderful job of describing it. He says, the tree that comes from living waters is fertile. We now notice that the rich network of branches that fills the entire breadth of the picture is not simply an ornament. It's a great vine whose branches grow forth from the roots and limbs of the tree of the cross. They extend over the whole world in great circling motions, drawing it into itself. The world itself becomes a single large vineyard. Between its shoots and amidst its coils, the fullness of historical life stirs. The work of shepherds, of peasants, and monks, of animals, and men of all kinds. The whole colorful diversity of existence we find depicted in images 
full of fantasy and joie de vivre. So um, what is happening in these, uh, in among these coils, you see a little, for you they probably just like little flecks of light from where you're sitting, but we have pictured um, bishops of the church, saints um, in different places. We also have common people, just average folks. We also have um, figures of um, mythic beings that aren't even part of the Christian tradition who um, here and there you know, float in this world. Uh, and at the base of the, uh, of the image, we have some of these animals, just as we have animals up here. And you can see that at the base of the cross where the, where the vine springs out, we have these four streams of water. And those are those four rivers that we mentioned earlier. And um, drinking from those streams then are these deer. If you look on the right side by the hoof of that, the back hind leg of that deer on the right, you see an orangish fish. You see a kind of egret-like bird. Um, there are fanciful flowers and more naturalistic flowers. Um, all kinds of um, effort to flood the uh, image with life itself. And that's the life that comes from the cross. So there's this constant um, merging. And here is a, a bigger detail uh, of that, a little section that I was talking about. And here's one of the birds depicted in the mosaic, maybe an owl, I don't know. We have an owl up there. Yeah. Well, that's where I have to defer <laughs> to uh, someone who, who has done that art historical work. Um, I can give you my sense about it. Uh, first of all, I'm sorry that I cannot remember the names of at least two of those figures who I do know, <laughs> quote unquote know. Um, but they are like mythological figures. Uh, like Greek figures or something. Um, my sense is that basically this vine encompasses the world. This vine embraces everything. There is no kind of exclusivity here in God's grace as it spreads out uh, from the cross. And so that's the way I read it. I don't know. Matt, do you want to give a shot at that? Do you have? Yeah. Here at the base of the apse, we have a woman feeding her chickens. You see the chickens down here at the, at the bottom? Uh, so there are people depicted along the base of this apse that are fishing, uh, which is one of the best things any human being can do. Um, so it's, uh, it's just filled with, with the, what as a, uh, the joy of life, as Pope Benedict um, said. The, 
the waters, the, the waters that come from the foot of the cross in these traditional um, tree of life images, um, as we've been saying, refer to these four rivers from in paradise. And here's a 13th century emblem that is on something called the Hereford map of the world. And what you see, and this, by the way, was taken by some folks as a true map of the world. It's not like this is just somebody's sketch. This was the way to understand the world. We see the waters around this, the circumference of the world, and we see from the tree in the center, the rivers flowing out to it. And of course, we also have Adam and Eve, and this is a tr tree of the knowledge of good and evil um, in this instance. But this kind of notion and way of understanding the world has been around you know, for a long time. And here's what that map, that Hereford map, actually looks like. And the, the, uh, the emblem that we were just looking at is this, little, is this little spot right here. But you can see this wonderful map of the world, um, which is also almost as simple and, as the uh, map that we see in the emblem, which is a way of understanding the cosmos as, as God's world. Okay, here's another apse that contains this um, kind of symbol, and it's another mosaic, this uh, also in Rome. Here's another, I have two slides of it, just hoping to get something like the actual color of it. But let's just kind of zero in on it and look um, at the, what's happening there at the lower end of the apse. If you look right in the center of the top, you can see the, the ending of, the, of two wings of, a, of the, bird that symbolizes the Holy Spirit, that white shape at the very, very top edge. And from the Holy Spirit flows this water down through the cross. And in the center of the cross is the baptism of Christ. And as that comes down into this little kind of hill, do you see that? Like the holy mountain, you might say, this mound on which either side are these two deer, the four streams flow out. And they flow down and into the river, which is understood by most historians as the River Jordan. In the center of it, that bright spot you see, like what looks like right in the very center, that gold is actually, if you could see it, a holy, it's a city. It's supposed to represent the New Jerusalem. So again, we have animals all over the place um, in there, birds, sheep, um, and uh, all kinds of different plants at the bottom, and they're all um, being nourished by this river uh, that brings life to the world, brings life to the landscape, okay? Brings life to our landscape, you know, even to Lincoln Marsh, even to Jewel Road. But here's what's great. Look at the River Jordan. This is a guy who is windsurfing on the river. Do you see that down there? He's holding up a sail and sailing along, and he's just joyously having a blast. And there are people who are just plain swimming. And, you know, in Ezekiel, you know how he says, you know, he starts out seeing the trickle that comes out from under the altar, and he go, he's led further and further until he says it was a river that no man could cross, a river you could swim in. <laughs> That's kind of the way uh, this presented. And so we have, you know, that going on in our mural as well. Um, just a little 
comment here. The River Jordan, just looking at this lower paragraph maybe, flows across the bottom of the apse, watering all the earth. Um, then this quote from Ezekiel, wherever the river goes, every living creature which swarms will live. On the banks of both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So um, again, our mission is connected to this kind of concept of bringing this kind of life out into the world. Okay, just quickly, how are we doing for time here? I know you, you gave me your watch and now I don't even... <laughs> uh, just a few comments ab about how the painting came to be. Um, through a process of discussion with Father Martin and others, um, we talked about possible imagery and ultimately came up with this kind of drawing, um, which I then uh, projected onto that wall and traced off the drawing itself before beginning the painting. Um, made some drawings of figures and birds and animals um, that I thought might be useful in the um, image and then borrowed from other art historical sources for some of the figures like this is a sculpture by Rodin that I was looking at when I was thinking about how to portray uh, Christ. Um, and you all were here, you know that it just was a, took about, a, what, two weeks for us to get this whole thing up and running. And I don't want to go into all those details. But let's turn to this whole notion of the mountain that we have there, the hill, which is really Zion, the hill of the Lord, the holy mountain, you might say. Um, where do we get that kind of notion? Well, certainly from the Psalms, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Isaiah, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. So we have our mound, our mountain from which the waters are flowing and of course we have the landscape all around that spreads uh, behind it, um, which takes us out into the rest of the world. Just as an example of this kind of uh, imagery from ancient art, here's a 19th or a 9th century mosaic in which um, very simply we have, I don't know if you can make, can you see that that's a lamb in the very center? And it's standing on this little hillock. Do you see that? And look what's coming, four streams flowing from that hill. And look, we have deer, once again, um, on either side, uh, drinking from uh, the fountain. So all of this kind of imagery was circling in our minds as we thought about how to construct this uh, image and, and put it together. So here we are um, with our um, own painting. Um, and as far as this holy mountain, great is the Lord greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. And then we have these views out into the kingdoms of this world, right? The cities that are back there that you look at. People say, is that Chicago? 
maybe, I don't know, there's no lake there, but it's okay. But there are rivers that flow out there. Um, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So the world landscape is God's landscape. That's the landscape we're in. That's the landscape that we are looking at and thinking about. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself. We're talking here about the temple in Jerusalem, actually. But again, I think we need to connect that temple to the landscape because they are images one of the other. Wherever the river goes, which we've already read, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be many fish. <laughs> Always a good thing. And I have to admit, you may not remember some of you, Father Martin, preaching a sermon on the salmon. It was a wonderful sermon. And that was also inspirational to bringing so many fish um, into this painting. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. So our message, you know, as we walk out of church is to carry this kind of joy and exuberance of the spirit with us as we walk under that water. Think about it. Every time you leave, you walk under that water that flows over you. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In terms of its function then for us, in terms of the way we can make it work for us, we walk up to communion and when we turn around, we can look up and look at Christ on the holy mountain and take um, um, some uh, support from that. Every time there's a baptism, it happens right back there under the fountain, in the fountain, under the fountain. So we can let ourselves look. <laughs> That's something that we don't often do, but you gotta let yourself look to see some of these things. It's happening. You know how during Lent, at the end of the service, um, there's a reading from Luke about the shepherd and uh, who loses one sheep and you know, who goes and looks for it, right? Um, we read that right under the good shepherd. So you can listen and look at the same time and you'll be doubly blessed. Um, every time we sing the last hymn, we've gotten into this habit of sort of turning as um, the procession leaves the front of the church and we can look up we're looking at our hymn book, but you can also look up <laughs> and be encouraged by um, this painting. And of course, then, just as we're leaving the sanctuary, there's a pool of water there that you can dip into as you come and go and uh, carry this uh, kind of blessing uh, out into the world. So, rather quick and rough and ragged um, run over some aspects of the painting um, I think we're probably just about out of time, but what, what are we, how are we doing? Any questions? Yeah, Jennifer?
What do you think, maybe five or six years yeah. ago? So periodically in five years, there's been different things going on for me personally where I have had flashes of images of people's faces on that land. And it's been really fascinating for me to think about who is it that Jesus is rescuing right now? You know, is it me? Is it someone else that, is it someone that I thought was an enemy but is actually the sheep on Christ's shoulders? I've had some very interesting just as we have turned, as, um, the, as the recessional is going, where I've looked up there and I've had this flash that connected with something for me personally. That is very beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, both of those things I think are just really wonderful. Yeah. This can help us notice the, the cardinal. Yeah. Yep. Well, the cardinal, I mean, is definitely, like you say, the state bird of Illinois, and I was very aware of that, and I thought, local, 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 you know, bring it home. But also, all the birds there um, are local birds. Uh, there's a chickadee, robin, um, the uh, heron or egret-like bird. There are birds that I think of as being maybe like, um, uh, what are they called? Um, what's the... It's not a true hawk, but it's a, well, I can't think of the name of it. I'm sorry. There's an owl over there. Um, yeah, I, I wish I had put more birds and more animals in there. Um, wasn't, we just kind of ran out of time, I think. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. The, the gold is a lot of art historians talk about it as suggesting this kind of spiritual presence, um, the divine presence. And so in our painting, the gold is behind everything. Uh, the gold, the, we painted the wall. I had great help from a colleague at Wheaton College at the time, Leah Samuelson, who is an expert at doing these things. And we painted the wall dark brown, then we brought in the gold on top of it so that you get a little brown coming through it so it kind of has a little bit of texture to it. So the whole wall was brown, then the whole wall was gold, and then uh, what you see. So that the gold is meant to penetrate through everything and be that kind of spiritual light. Yes? Good point, yeah. Yes, indeed, that's right. Martin? Well, it's like they, they lose their life. I mean, that's the whole idea of the salmon. Yeah. They give their lives for the, for the, for the young that are born. But I would just note, like, how you brought, I reflect that probably for the first thousand years, Christians had no interest in Jesus hanging on the cross as a focus of, of any Right. I, I guess it's later that that came in. So the cross is 
intrigued at how you, you then how you sewed it all together by putting the wounds on Jesus' body, just a reminder that he's been through all And I think even the, the cross sprouting uh, branches is 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 a bit of a, a continuation, an opening up. I mean, tradition is meant for us to open. I mean, it's meant to the order leading to chaos, and the chaos is the creativity. But I, I'm just uh, noting that little bit of gracious chaos that you brought to us in the, in the wounded, in, embodied Christ, and in the actual cross, which literally sprouted think, But I think that's the novel, not, I think that, that would be an innovation, iconographically speaking. And just hmm. seeing that, my colleague as well, uh, Dr. Melanie, if we have in fact added to the tradition, which would be our hope, not just to take it as a dead thing, finite and, and sealed and delivered, but an open thing that we are meant to continue and challenge and, and create and innovate. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what we can all do with that image as we come and go every every day. Is interpret, innovate, carry it out. Sounds like the bell wants to ring, even if it doesn't. <laughs> Thank you, Joel. <laughs>